I was speaking this week with a friend who is black uh, about the Buffalo shootings. And he said that the part that was the most discouraging um, about the recent racial violence was just the sense that America was not making progress in the area of racial reconciliation and justice. And he said that about 10, 15 years ago, he felt kind of hopeful, but now he feels like we're going backwards and this leaves him in a, a dark place. And that same day, I was listening to a podcast on deconstruction, that, that experience that uh, you can go through where you start to question your faith, doubt your faith, wonder if it's true. And the host was listing reasons for why people go through this. And one of the biggest reasons was this sense of disappointment with God that you thought things were going to go better, that if you'd done certain things or prayed certain things, this would be the result. And so why, why has life not turned out that way? Well, one of the reasons I think people go back to the book of Exodus again and again is because this wonderful story of God liberating Israel from slavery is a metaphor uh, for the spiritual life, whether individually or in our society as the kingdom of God breaks through. And one of the lessons that we learn from the part of the story we're going to read tonight is that the road to liberation is bumpy. Exodus reveals God as a liberator. And Laura Lyson, who's working on her PhD and has spent a lot of time thinking about this, just gave us an excellent description of what uh, liberation means in the Bible. God's liberating work is the total liberation of creaturely life from sin and death and all its forms to fullness of life and relationship with God and all God's creatures. God is the God who liberates totally, even as we wait for that reality to come fully in our bodies, in our hearts, and in our societies. Another part of the message of Exodus is that we get to join God in this liberating work, whether it's in our own life or in a world that is trying to be rescued from death. However we join God, it's a bumpy road. Well, Exodus starts off with uh, Israel living in bondage under a nameless Pharaoh. Uh, Exodus tells us uh, this wonderful story of how God liberates them. God calls Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. Moses goes before Pharaoh, demands that they be allowed to worship. Pharaoh refuses. God sends a series of increasingly severe plagues on Egypt. And Pharaoh stubbornly responds. Finally, God sends a final plague. God will go into the midst of Egypt and kill the firstborn child of every house. But Israel tells, or God tells Israel to put the blood of a lamb over their doorpost and that when that is done, the angel of death will pass over them and spare their child. God tells Israel to worship with an annual Passover feast to remember this great event. The Hebrew families obey and the angel of death passes over their homes. And that brings us up to where we are 
tonight in Exodus uh, 14 and 15. And the episode that we're going to look at tonight is the most commonly referenced Bible story in the Old Testament, the crossing of the Red Sea. The biblical writers mention it 25 times. And there are three uh, movements in this story that I want you to pay attention to. And then the first is rescue. The second is praise. And the third is wilderness. And what I want to suggest is that that actually is a cycle, uh, a pattern, a model of what it's like to walk with God and serve him that we will go through these cycles again and again in our life. Now, the crossing of the Red Sea is such an important story in the Bible that I want to read it in its entirety tonight. Um, And if you have a Bible, you can follow along. We're in Exodus 14. If not, I think we have it on the screen. Um, Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. And encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth between Migdal and the sea in front of Balzaphon. And you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say, uh, the people of Israel, they're just wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord. And they did so. So God sets a trap for Pharaoh. He wants them to appear like they're floundering so that the Pharaoh will come in and pursue them. The text says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Probably means he turns them over to his natural desires. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we've done that we've let Israel go from serving us? Slave owners do not like it when their slaves rebel. I'm reading a book called How the Word Was Passed by Clint Smith. He's a poet and a a writer. He traveled to six places in the U.S., one on the western coast, each with a distinctive connection to slavery, and and he he lets each place tell their story of, of slavery in America. And in a chapter about the Whitney Plantation in Wallace, Louisiana, he begins by describing the first image that a visitor sees when they come to the plantation and it's of decapitated heads on stakes circling the, uh, the entire front of the plantation. And this is a depiction of an actual historical event that took place in 1811 uh, after quelling the largest slave rebellion in history. The slave owners decided they had to teach everyone a lesson and so they cut off the heads of all involved and put them on stakes so that the community would see that and be warned to never rebel again. Slave owners do not like it when slaves rebel. The Hebrew people here are challenging an entire demonic system 
of Egyptian slavery that was the heart of the entire Egyptian nation and economy. And the system fought back. Now, many years later, the Apostle Paul will tell us what's happening here in the spiritual realm. And he will say that principalities and powers, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, work in and through fallen institutions to work for death and not liberation. William Stringfellow has written about this more than anyone I know. He says the monstrous American heresy is in thinking that the whole drama of history takes place between God and humanity. But the truth is otherwise. The drama of this history takes place between God, humanity, and the principalities and the powers. The great institutions and ideologies active in the world. And then he talks about racism. He says, racism is not an evil in human hearts and minds only. It is a principality, a demonic power, an embodiment of death which works its awful influence in our lives. Now, I've, uh, one of the things I've tried to do to grow as a preacher is uh, all my commentaries are from um, white men. And so I've been trying to, to read the preaching and the commentaries on the book of Exodus from uh, uh, people of color, Latin Americans, black uh, Americans and scholars. And, and one of the things that they have helped me see is that Pharaoh is a symbol of oppression, even a symbol of Satan. Dr. King uh, says this, Egypt symbolized evil in the form of humiliating oppression exploitation and domination. So liberation is never easy. Slaveholders want to cut off the heads of all who rebel. And that, that's true in our personal life as well, right? Paul says that we are slaves to sin and that Christ is freeing us from bondage to sin. And so we need to recognize that when you choose freedom, when you decide to turn away from something that holds you in bondage, when you decide to work in the community for liberation of the oppressed, you are facing a demonic power that wants to enslave you and keep you from flourishing. Last summer, I'm not sure what happened, but the street over behind the Regus building that heads up to Broadway and, and Carm, for about six months, I don't know, I don't know, just police stopped going there. And for a season, it was like Dante's Inferno. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Uh, fentanyl everywhere, people shooting up, people having sex on the sidewalk, and it was just unbelievable. And one of the, the men that I'd gotten to know uh, was really doing well and starting to work through some things and moving towards some freedom. And then one day I'm walking by and I, I see him literally lying in the gutter. And I said, oh, how, how are you? What, what happened? And he said, uh, the devil got me. 
And you know, we could kind of use our uh, social scientist hats and say, well, he's not very educated and uh, we know that there are systemic issues and da 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 and he's addicted and fentanyl and all that's true. You know what? What's also true? The devil got him. They're both true. Verse 6. <laughs> so he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots, all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. Behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, we can serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you're never gonna see them again. The Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? <laughs> just, to, just stop there for a second. Doesn't that strike you as odd that the people of God are praying and crying out to God for mercy in their hour of great need and God says, what are you doing? Oh, I'm talking about this with a friend earlier in the week and you know, sometimes when God has told you what to do, you don't need another word. You just need to do what you've been told to do. And I think sometimes that can become a real challenge for us in our spiritual life. Why aren't you speaking, Lord, Lord, I want this, I want this, I want this. And he says, hey, wait a minute. We've already talked about this back then. You do that and we'll talk again. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea. Divide it and the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord. Verse 19, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground and waters being a wall on them in their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. 
And in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud look down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us free from Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Well, they are so overwhelmed by God's deliverance that they explode in praise. We won't read much of this. I know I've given you a lot of scripture tonight. Just the first couple verses. It's called the Song of Moses. There's some reasons why it looks like Miriam might have written it. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Just continues with this powerful hymn of praise and ends in verse 20. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Well, if only we could end here. This great rescue that results in this great praise. But we can't. Let's read the rest of the story and we'll wrap up. Verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter, and therefore they named it Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes, And give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. Instead of a land of milk and honey, they get the desert. 
the singing, the dancing stops. They're free, but they're in a howling wilderness. And God doesn't abandon them, but they're in a hard place. And I want to end with just two application points. I wanted to read all that scripture to you because it's some of the most foundational scripture in the Bible. Suppose that you have come off of a retreat or a very powerful spiritual experience and you just feel so close to God you could almost touch him. You're, you're just so full of the Spirit, so eager to serve Him. What often happens next? The wilderness. A sense of barrenness, of being cut off from God, of being distant from Him. It happens again and again and again. Maybe you, uh, you realize you've had an addiction. And finally, you've been broken over it. You realize you've been covering it up. You've been maybe even lying about it. And you've gone to a recovery group. Maybe, maybe you've actually been in recovery and you've, you've come through it. And finally, you feel clean and pure. And you've talked to the people that you need to talk to. And, 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 and then the next thing that happens is you're in the wilderness. And suddenly God seems far away again. Exodus teaches us that God is present in the rescue, in the praise, and in the wilderness. And if you find yourself here tonight and you're discouraged because you were once at a certain place with God but you're not there tonight, Remember that God is present in the wilderness as much as he in, in the rescue. And let that comfort you. Because you will go through this cycle again and again the rest of your spiritual journey. And God is as present in the miracle as he has in the wilderness. Now let's end with this. I want to constantly hit this theme as we go through Exodus that it's both a metaphor of our spiritual journey, our personal salvation and the liberation that God wants to do in the world. This is, this is a book about justice as well as personal spirituality. And if you care about justice in any way, if there's if there's any part of this world that you care about, seeing God change, if there's any oppressed group of people that you care about and you are committed to trying to help liberate with God, you'll see this cycle too of great victories that lead to praise that then lead to wilderness. 
Sometimes God will seem like a pillar of fire and sometimes he'll seem like he's a million miles away. The Emancipation Proclamation is followed by the birth of the KKK. Juneteenth is followed by 5,000 lynched black bodies. The soaring rhetoric of I have a dream is followed by gunshots in Memphis. And yet, as Dr. King put it, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I'm sure he got that from Exodus. It's so hard to tell that when you're in the middle of it. Well, here's what the story means to me. I received my first check as a pastor in June of 1983. As I wind up my pastoral career, and I'm not retiring, by the way. Um, I'm going to something else. Not ready to retire yet, but I'm retiring from the pastorate. And so one of the things that I've tried to do is just reflect back on, all right, 39 years um, what happened? <laughs> what's, what's happened? And you've got to be careful asking these questions. Um, I always thought I was a two on the Enneagram. My daughter insists I'm a four, and I believe she's right. And when I'm not healthy, which is very, very rare, you could ask them, but occasionally <laughs> I'm not a healthy four, and I can focus on what went wrong in the 39 years and not on what went right. But when I am a healthy four, Exodus helps me. Because I look back at over those 39 years and I see seasons of great fruitfulness and seasons when God seems as close as a cloud and seasons of wilderness when you wonder why you ever left Egypt in the first place. I've seen God part the waters. I've sung the song of Moses. And I've grumbled in the desert when the water tasted bitter. But I will say this, after 39 years, this I know to be true. The arc of the moral universe may be long, but it does bend towards justice. And I'm glad we got to experience that together. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this table would be a little bit of manna in the wilderness for us. Just a reminder that we will one day make it to the promised land. And that you are present with us. Even when the waters of our life taste bitter. Come, meet us now, we pray. In your name, amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord. On the night that our Lord was betrayed.